Jerry. Thank you very much, Art. I'm really grateful to be with you again. And I, I don't think I'm as, uh, I, I'm a goofball, people. I need Jesus so desperately, and I'm well aware of it, and I don't think that my need for him is casual. It's constant. And I know that, and I love him. I don't love him very well, but I love him. And every night before I go to sleep, the last things I pray are, Lord, I love you. I don't do it well, but I'm grateful you made it so easy for me to do it all. And that's where I am. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I was an inner city kid during the Watts riots. I played football with guys that got free televisions during the Watts riots. And a, and a guy was shot in the leg at the end of my block, and that was home. And then I go to college. I had no academic interest whatsoever, but you have to take it completely by faith now. I was a football player back then. So I went to play sports, and my academic interest was the bare minimum, just enough to stay eligible. And I became a Christian at the beginning of my freshman year, and I wanted to tell people about him. And so I did. I started talking to people about Jesus, my football friends, and they would ask me questions. I had no, I had no idea about the answer to these questions. If God's good and all-powerful, why does evil exist in the universe? I confess to you, I never once asked the question before I became a Christian. I'm embarrassed about that now. I've since written a book on it. It matters to me. But my friends asked, and I said, I won't leave a stone unturned till I can find out the answer. I was a PE major in college and not a very good one. Um, and <clears throat> matter of fact, my college roommate and I, we, we both needed to take a human anatomy class that was a prerequisite to move on to the next class. And the, they had six cadavers for 24 students. That's pretty good for a small college. But we had, my, my roommate and I, we were number 25 and 26 on the list, and so we weren't going to get in the class. We went to the prof and said, how, how do we... Uh, get in this class. He says, you won't. You can come the first day if anybody drops it. So the class was from 11 to 1 on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And at 1 o'clock, we had uh, football practice, team meetings, and all that sort of thing. And so we weren't going to have a chance for lunch, so we went and packed a lunch. And when they brought the cadavers up out of the tray, we pulled out our fried chicken, and six people dropped the class. <laughs> and I, we weren't clever enough to have figured that out, but it worked in our favor, so we got in. But I, somebody told me when I graduated from college, you don't get an education in college. You lay a foundation for one. And commencement means you will now commence your education. Build on that foundation. Pick an author who will take you places and make him your life study. And I, I picked Lewis. I was reading him, C.S. Lewis. I was reading him voraciously. Not my textbooks, but Lewis. And consequently, I ended up going to seminary, and I went to Talbot Seminary, and they, had a, 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 they would allow a certain quota of people in who didn't have grades to get in. And I think I took the whole quota the year I went there. They were kind and gracious to me, but my mind was starting to wake up. Reading the Bible, reading Lewis, now reading theology I was interested in, I started to grow. I, start, I wrote my doctoral uh, dissertation on Lewis, both master's and doctoral dissertations on Lewis. I, I, I didn't think writing on the use of the optative mood in the Greek text of Philemon was going to hold me, but maybe Lewis would. And so 
I just started growing, and I've since now lectured on him in 79 universities in 19 different countries. And you know how I feel about myself? I feel like I'm still that inner city kid that was a PE major. And, and I don't, I'm not embarrassed by that. I, I remember my roots. And I know John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's how I approach our times together, being aware of that. So let's look at 1 John chapter 2. I mentioned we're going through a series on the love of God. And this morning we looked um, uh, at God's love and particularly the love that pursues. Tonight I want to look at the love that nurtures. And so let's read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. But the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, I, I, you know me, and you know my incredible limits, and you know I offer little more than crumbs, given what there is to be known. And yet I pray once again that your Holy Spirit would take these crumbs like your son took the fish and loaves, and he would multiply them and bless them and distribute them so that each person here would hear something that he or she would know you tailor-made for them because your Holy Spirit applied it. And I pray that each one would sense in that the affirmation of how deeply they are loved by you, that you gave them what they needed this evening. For that transaction to occur, we want something supernatural to happen. And we pray that it will, for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I, I really believe the quest for maturity, uh, whether it be spiritual maturity or just maturity in life, is a process. And the process is truncated by arrogance. 
When I was a child, Paul said, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. We know now we didn't know much then. But somehow, because we know more now, we think we've got things pretty well figured out. And there's some arrogance there. Our experience says there was more than our childhood understanding was willing to admit. Why don't we realize there's more for us now as well? I remember years ago meeting with a plumber, and we would meet for breakfast, and he, he was a, a wonderful person. He went to university, he got a degree in English literature, and he continued to read books after graduation. It was really for him commencement. But he also went into a family plumbing business. He had calluses on his hands and calluses on his brain. From all I could observe of him, he was a good husband, a good father, a good man. And one day over breakfast, he took a paper napkin and he drew three concentric circles on the napkin. And he said, I think our acquisition of knowledge is like these three concentric circles. If we look in at what we've acquired, we always run the risk of getting arrogant the more we know. But the way to keep growing is to look out from the perimeter of what you know. And it reveals in greater and greater proportion how much there is out there that we're absolutely clueless about. And we want to avoid that kind of arrogance because that kind of arrogance that thinks we know so much, it truncates process. Don't be threatened, by the way, that you don't know everything. That's okay. You can have a sure word about things, but you'll never get a last word about anything. I, I believe in absolutes conceptually, but you'd have me institutionalized if I said I knew everything absolutely. Matter of fact, I think that's what they, they do institutionalize. Some of those people, they put them in academic institutions. <laughs> but nevertheless, you can have a sure word about something, you know it, but even the thing you know, you haven't plumbed the depths of. This is a pen. That's true. I can speak confidently about it and about its function. But it has a length, a width, a molecular structure. It has a, a, a formal cause, a pattern after which it was made, a material cause. It has a, a, an efficient cause, the person who made it. We could go on and on and on about this. Every truth I know can still be plumbed more deeply. It can be applied more widely. So I can have a sure word. I don't have a last word. Have confidence with the sure word, but hold it with humility because there's a lot you don't know. And that's okay. Because the fact that I don't know is not a threat. It means there's stuff out there that I can still have awe and wonder about. G.K. Chesterton said, the world will never starve for want of wonders, only for want of wonder. And the arrogant lose the opportunity to have that exploration of wonder. It's interesting to me that atheism is a cul-de-sac of arrogance and truncated development. Some is, I would guess, cultural groupthink. We haven't really thought that much about it, so we pair it with others say in our subculture. But, but I've, I've seen this before. It, it's overstating what we think we know. My, that friend of mine that I took that, that class with, you know, the, the, that we ate the fried chicken and all these kids dropped class. So his name's Chris Clayton. He's one of my closest friends. We meet every week on Zoom. And, and I went on and became a full professor and he went on and became a medical doctor. And if our professors in college knew what we did with our lives, I think they'd all drop dead right now. But he, he and I were going to go to Europe together last year, and the COVID thing stopped it. My younger brother's never been. He's, he's afraid to get on an airplane. He's a big strapping guy. He was an All-American football player. 
and, and, and it ended up when the thing can't, he was going to take the boat over because he was afraid to get on an airplane. I don't think we have the same mother because <laughs> I love turbulence on airplanes. You pay a lot of money for that in an amusement park and you get it value added on the airplane. I think it's wonderful. And not only that, you get the entertainment value of watching the people who don't like it. <laughs> and my brother, I said, Jimmy, just get a doctor to put you, put you out because the boat stopped going because of COVID. Get a doctor to put you out. You'll land in England, you'll be fine. And he said, he's weeping. He said, Jerry, I can't get on an airplane. So my buddy Chris said, okay, since all this stuff got canceled, why don't you come out? He lives up in Grass Valley, and he says, I've got a motorhome. We'll go to Half Moon Bay, and let's spend a week together since you've already blocked the time in your calendar. And we went out there and rode e-bikes. I'd never seen them before, but where were they when I was young? <laughs> and so we're riding all along Half Moon Bay every day, about four hours of bike riding, the rest of the time just having great conversations. And he said, you've got to see this one outcropping. The waves break against the rocks below. It's really fabulous. And we went there, and it was stunningly beautiful. And all of a sudden, this couple comes riding up. And, 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 and we're talking about the beauty. They were talking about it as well. And finally, I just said, isn't it great to know who to thank for this? And the guy looks at me all of a sudden all arrogant, and he goes, I'm an atheist. I said, I'll bet I could prove to you in 10 minutes you're not. <laughs> and he said, okay, try. And I said, well... The Widener Library at Harvard University has 19 million volumes under that one roof. What percent do you think you've read of those books? Well, he goes, hardly any. And I go, are you sure there's nothing in any of those books that you haven't read that would count against what you think about this issue? Are you going to extend your lack of knowledge into those areas as well? And, and, and I said, not only that, you're suggesting if you say there's no possibility God exists, nothing has ever been written about that, and nothing ever will be written about that. C.S. Lewis said negative knowledge is harder to prove. It can be proved, but it's harder to prove than positive knowledge. To say there's no spider in this room, what would I have to do? <laughs> Check every nook and cranny. To say there is one, I could see one scurrying across the floor. I'm not saying that proofs for God's existence are as easy as saying there's a spider scurrying across the floor. But negative knowledge requires more than I think it, on that particular topic than any of us can say. And this man said, you're right, I'm an agnostic. Well, that's, pr that's progress. <laughs> that's not bad. I said, well, if you got that one wrong, maybe you've got some, of the, some other things about this wrong too. Would you mind if I send you a book? He said, no. Send me a book. I said, I'm going to send you Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So I sent it to him. I didn't give him any way to get back to me. And somehow he found me and wrote an email back and thanked me for that book and that it was opening up doors for him. There was an honesty. Where, where did he, he wasn't a dishonest person. He wasn't a fool. He was just parroting what he had gotten from his subculture, but he hadn't thought seriously about it. There are some people who are atheists because they really are somewhat arrogant. And I had a long conversation one time, just one-on-one -on -one with Madeline Murray O'Hare. I don't know if you remember her or not. And, and, and she was kind. She gave me a lot of time. And we had this conversation. She wasn't an atheist any more than anybody in this room is an atheist. She was very clear to me that the reason why she was an atheist was because she chose to be promiscuous. And if she became a believer, she would have to give up that part of her life and she didn't want to give it up. That's dishonesty. 
It's not honest. And it keeps us, those kinds of things, groupthink, lack of thinking, uh, dishonesty, can keep us from development. And the reality is maturity is a process, and we're all pea brains. We don't know very much. And not only that, we're neophytes. We're rookies at this whole life thing. And when it comes to process, we do well to remember us. None of us are very life-skilled. Were any of you really ready to get married when you got married? <laughs> we were all sure we were. Were any of you ready to have children when you had children? You were responsible. You read books. You went to seminars. You had one, and you go, oh, my heavens, I don't remember that chapter. And then you think you got it figured out, and you had a second one. And it wasn't quite the same. And all of a sudden, we realize that none of us is very life-skilled. Furthermore, all of us are somewhat awkward. A toddler learning to walk falls down and gets bruised. The, the five-year-old taking the training wheel off the two-wheeler falls down and gets abrasions. Remember when you went from that one schoolroom experience to middle school, the most purgatorial time of human development? <laughs> and you had to get to 12 classes and work a locker that never seemed to work. By the time you were a senior in high school, you could have done it blindfolded. But do you remember how awkward you were? Do you remember your first day of marriage? Do you remember your first day at your first job? All of us, to some degree or another, are awkward we have to lean into the awkwardness. Matter of fact, I'd say if you're not awkward someplace in your life, you're just not growing. So to grow reveals, again, that we're neophytes at this thing. And sometimes the process is marked by moral failures as well. It's impeded. We do wrong, then come to a mystical moment in our life. We can either repent of the wrong, pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and get back in the game again, or we can justify and rationalize our bad behavior. Aristotle in his book Ethics says, vice is unconscious of itself. I do a bad thing and I'm at risk of rationalizing the bad thing so I can persist in the bad behavior. The immoral woman in Proverbs says she wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. C.S. Lewis said in his book on Milton's Paradise Lost, um, continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. And Paul said in Romans 1.18, we suppress the truth and our unrighteousness. There's a word that's been coined in philosophy about this. It's called akrasia or akrasia. Akrasia means to be in command of something. Put the alpha negation, it means to lose command. We lose command of our moral life when we rationalize our bad behavior and we stay truncated in our moral development. Sin is a threat to spiritual maturity. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, it makes it very clear God doesn't want us to sin. He, he says it explicitly. My children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But he knows us like the back of his hand, doesn't he? And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He doesn't want us to sin, but he knows us too well. I, I remember when I was a brand new Christian. I'd been a Christian about a year. And I prayed, Lord, discipline me. I know I need to grow. Did somebody moan when I said that? <laughs> You're a man after my own heart. I prayed, Lord, discipline me. The next three months that followed were the worst months of my life. You know how Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living? 
I guarantee you, if you're not examining your life, all your friends around you will be happy to help you do it. <laughs> and all my friends decided it was their role in life to tell me things that were short in my life. And you know what the sad thing was? They were right. I have never prayed, Lord, discipline me ever since. I say, Lord, keep me from a stiff neck. Give me a soft heart and help me to learn vicariously through the mistakes of others. <laughs> Why do you think we have all these characters in the Old Testament that we talked about in, in, in earlier? I think God has given us this. We don't have to go through all that, but most of us do if you're anything like me. And so when we sin, we have to know we do have an advocate. Parakletos, one who's called alongside. We have Jesus. We have the work of the Father and what he did for us in Christ who forgave us of those sins completely. And not only that, we have the Holy Spirit who will convict us so that we'll see things maybe before we would do a bad thing, convict us certainly after we do a bad thing, and maybe drive us to Christ so we'll put it right in our life and not live in the cesspool we're creating for ourselves. And consequently, also, we keep his commandments if we come to know him and if we're growing in him. We'll keep his word. And the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Well, there's a life direction for you, isn't it? We walk in the light and love those around us. We'll mess up. It's a maturing process, a process and when we mess up, we go back to John 2. I'm writing these things to you that you won't sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. That's not an excuse for sinning. But it gives us hope in the process. We go back to 1 John 1, 9. I mentioned it this morning. Homologeo. To say the same thing about ourselves. To become self-aware. <clears throat> I, I don't know about you, but I pray prayers of confession each day. But if there's a risk that I do something wrong and I can rationalize it, how do I know where those places are where I need to be confessing? I don't know what you've worked in your life, but this has been helpful to me. I go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It says, love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Provocation is a symptom that my love was probably self-seeking. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. If I'm holding some bitterness in my life, something's not right. And I come to the end of my day, and I, I might not know where I sinned, but I know where I was provoked. And I begin to look back at those things, and I say, Lord, I know what prompted that. And I know what prompted that is that my love was self-seeking. I confess this to you. I'm growing in a realm of self-awareness. I haven't got it all together yet, but I know the direction I need to be moving. Are you with me? So anyway, the standard by which we measure our progress is objective. It's objective. C.S. Lewis said, old judgments imply a standard. What's the standard? If I'm an architect in California and I'm writing plans for a contractor in New York and I say cut the board at six feet, I'm assuming that in California and New York we're working at the same system of measure. There's an objective standard we appeal to. The process for spiritual maturity also needs an objective standard. What is it? Are you familiar with the name John Stott? I, I, I remember when David Brooks wrote his article for the New York Times, and he said, you know, when the news media, they just don't understand how evangelicals work. When the news media 
wants to trump out an evangelical, they bring out um, somebody like Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson and says, most evangelicals aren't listening to them. They're listening to John Stott. Uh, the uh, editor of Time Magazine took that article and threw it on the desk of his religious uh, editors and says, who's John Stott and how come I don't know who he is? Brooks said if the evangelicals had a pope, it would be John Stott. Stott came and spoke at Wheaton College the last time he uh, came to our campus. And he had a 10-minute talk, and he took questions from the students. And one student asked him, how do you reach a postmodernist for Jesus? I don't know about you, more people talk about postmodernism than actually read about it. But Stott gave a very tight definition of postmodernism, a very tight definition of deconstruction, and then he said this, you reach the postmodernist by being an authentic person. As soon as he said that, I went into existential despair. <laughs> I'm not an authentic person. I believe in the high ideal of love, but I've had sharp words with people I say I love most in the world. I believe in justice, but there have been times I've been unfair in my relationship with others. I didn't set out to be. I didn't even realize it in the moment. But in reflection, I realize I have. So... I remember leaving that chapel, Edmund Chapel at Wheaton Seats, 2,500 people. It's huge. And, and I was sitting up in the front in the faculty section, and I just go sauntering out the middle aisle, thinking, I'm not going to reach any postmodernists for Jesus. I'm not an authentic person. And by the time I got to the end of the aisle, right at the narthex, I thought to myself, you know what? I think there's only been one. I think there's only been one person who could say, I lived my human life the way it was intended to be lived, and that was Jesus. So now the question changes, doesn't it? How does an inauthentic person begin to approximate authenticity? And I think it's by starting out being honest about our inauthenticity. And I don't know about you, but every time I am, it makes me more and more hungry for Jesus. I want him in my life. I need his resource, again, not casually, constantly. And if we think less than that, then we're, we're deceiving ourselves. The standard is objective, and it's Jesus Christ. But it has characteristics unique to each of us. Uh, everybody knows Dante's Divine Comedy. But his first book he wrote was called The Vita Nuova, means new life. He wrote it when he was about 25 years old, and he begins by talking about when he met this young woman named Beatrice Portinari on the Ponte Vecchio over the bri uh, bridge over the Arno in Florence. And he named it New Life. But what did she mean? He wasn't quite sure. He, he, he ends up 25 years later writing the Divine Comedy. And Virgil, who represented to him the highest of literary art, Virgil reads him, leads him through the Inferno, leads him halfway through the purgatorio, and then Beatrice, who's died, comes out of heaven to collect him, and she leads him through the rest of the purgatorio on into the paradiso to the very threshold of the vision of God. And Dante writes, she turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. What Dante was saying was, all loves are awakening in us a first love or a hunger for a first love. Human love is great as far as it goes. It doesn't go to the place that could ultimately satisfy. We need Jesus. By the way, C.S. Lewis, when his wife died, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. You know what the last lines are in that book? They're in Italian. She turned to look, but not at me. 
she turned to the eternal fountain. Between the Vita Nuova and the Divine Comedy, he wrote two other books, The Convivo and The Demonarchia. It's a demonarchia I want to pay attention to because it has to do with spiritual maturity. In the demonarchia of the monarch, he writes very early in that book, function precedes essence, function, purpose. The thing that God has for you preceded the essence he gave you to fulfill that function. You have a little bit of an indication of this in the creation account. On day one, what does he create? Light. But when does he create the luminary, sun, moon, and stars? Day four. He created function before he created the essences to fulfill the function. It's very interesting to me. And this means that each of us is unique as a God-given gift. How many times have you seen people and they say, oh, if I was just like that person over there, or if I just made as much money as that person over there, or Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that person over there. And we miss out on the uniqueness that God has for all of us. Why are you the height you are, the weight you are? Why do you have the color eyes you have? Why were you born into privilege if you were born into privilege? Or why were you born into poverty if you were born into poverty? And I had to work my own way through college. We were poor. And there were times when I would run out of food. And I'd have to drink ketchup out of a ketchup bottle or try and make a thin tomato soup out of the ketchup. Or I'd go to the uh, Bob's Big Boy Jr. across the street if I could come up with 32 cents I'd buy a cup of chili but you know how they had the two crackers and the little things I, I would like use 40 of them and just keep putting them into the chili and I'm, I'm a sophomore I went to Nixon's college and Nixon was elected my freshman year and Henry Ford II's son comes driving into the campus with the hottest car Ford had and every year he had the next hottest car and when he turned 21 29 million dollars were deposited in his account. I bet he never worried about ketchup or chili. But you know what I noticed about him? All these students glammed onto him like bees to honey, expecting him to pick up the tab, trying to use him. And I thought to myself, how does a poor guy like that know if somebody really likes him or if they want something from him? And I thought those were the challenges and the lines that were drawn to him. These were the challenges and lines that were drawn to me. And I'm not looking around saying, why don't I have this or why don't I have that? I say, Lord, you have wired me uniquely. You want me to look like Jesus in a unique way, not like anybody else. And so consequently, we're conscious of those things as well. I think I'm going on a little bit too long here, so I want to move ahead. Keep There's, going. Huh? Keep going. Well, I don't want to abuse the time. And so, I, we, you know, it doesn't have to be eternal to be spiritual. But, 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 but the thing is, though, we get to this then passage, if we move down to verses 12 through 14, where he's describing then specific phases of spiritual development. And, and he, he begins it by writing, I am writing to you, and then he says, I have written to you. I'm writing to you, children, I have written to you, children. I'm writing to you, young men or adolescents, I have written to you. I'm writing to you, fathers of the faith, or you mature ones, you older ones, I have written to you. He starts off with children. Verse 12. The word that he uses there for child is technia in the Greek. It's a toddler. It's a person who's just, just starting out, a real rookie. And what does he say about this person? I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. What did you know when you came to faith? I, I grew up 
going to an inner city church, and, and I was told if I went to a movie and Jesus came back, he wouldn't go in the theater to get me. I'd just go straight to hell. I wanted to see Walt Disney's Shaggy Dog, but didn't know if it was worth risking my eternal destiny to go see. And the neighbor lady comes down, Mrs. Greenlee. I'm not embellishing this at all. This happened just like this. She asked my mother, I'm about eight or nine years old, if my brothers and I could go with her boys, Mike and Fred, who we played with all the time, to see the Shaggy Dog. I'm looking at my mom with complete ambivalence. I want to see it desperately, but didn't know if it was worth risking my eternal destiny. And when my mom said... Yep, my boys can go. I thought, man, does my mom really love me? That she put my life in such eternal peril. <laughs> I was told if I lived a holy and righteous life but had a bad thought the last second of my life, I'd go straight to hell. And I lived my life in fear. I remember as a boy going to bed at night saying, forgive me, 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 thinking if my last words were forgive me and I died during the night, I was okay. It was a terrifying time. Lived in fear. And finally, I just said, forget it. I can't live the life. So I'm going to hell no matter what. Might as well live like I'd have a little fun while I can. And I was miserable. And I go to college, and I hear the gospel for the first time where I really heard it clear that the God of the universe knew me, all about me. And he still loved me. And he forgave me. I'm going to talk more about this tomorrow in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. He loved me, and he forgave me, and I have never stopped being grateful for that fact. I want everybody to know it. Blows me away. I'm writing to you children, you toddlers. And what does it say? I'm writing to you little children Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Have you ever heard that little ditty, that song, we are the reason God gave his son, we are the reason he suffered and died? It's not true. God has no reasons external to himself. He, he's non-contingent. We are the reason as recipients that God gave his son. He is the reason he gave his son. It's all in him. He loves us so much. And, and what did you know? Your sins are forgiven. None of you, when you first came to Christ, said, oh, I get it now. Jesus is a perfect anthropic person, manifest in the hypostatic union, eschatological ground of all my hope. How many of you said that? <laughs> you just knew your sins were forgiven. Wow. And then it goes on and says, I have written to you, children. Different word. Paideia. The word from which we get the word pedagogical. A child under teachable instruction. Every child loved by his father, will be disciplined. There will be those issues too. I, I remember when I was a boy, I, I, went, I was six years old and my dad took us to see the Rams. It was a preseason game. The tickets were cheap. And we saw the Rams play in L.A. Uh, in the stadium, the, the uh, Coliseum. Thank you. We saw him play in the Coliseum. They were playing against, um, it was Norm Van Brocklin was the quarterback. shows you how long ago it was. And Sonny uh, Jurgensen was the quarterback of the Washington Redskins. I don't even remember who won. But I remember as a six-year-old looking him down there and saying, whatever those guys are doing, I want to do that. And my whole focus as a child was to be a football player. And I ate it. And I drank it, and I slept it. And if there was ever a game to be played, a sandlot game, I was right in the middle of it. We were too poor to play any of those youth league football teams. So I had to wait till I was in high school. And I remember when I was in junior high school, 
our junior high was turned into a three-year junior high school, and high school would only be three years. When you hear your junior high has been extended one year, it's like hearing that purgatory has been extended a little longer. <laughs> and the disappointment was so deep in me because I was missing out on that year, and I wanted to play college football. I needed experience. Next year, 10th grade, I say to my mom, I'm going to sign up for football. She says, you're not. You're not going to play football. You, you, you will get hurt. One day you'll thank me for this. I go, Mom, Mom, I, I, I've been living for this. I've got to play football. She says, you're not playing. I ran cross country. Look at me. Do I look like a cross country runner? Next year, I say, Mom, Mom, i got to play football. She says, you're not playing. You'll get hurt. I said, Mom, when I go to college, I'm playing football, and you can't stop me then. And if I don't get experience, I will get hurt then. You need to let me play football. And she says, okay, you can sign up. I ran all the way two miles to my high school and signed up. And I played junior varsity. I was too small. And I got in four plays the whole year, and we tied those games. I didn't play in a, uh, in a winning game. My senior year, we were the lowest-ranked high school in all of the L.A. City schools. We went 0-7 that year. We played Roosevelt High School 0-7 in the uh, L.A. Uh, um, uh, LA high school, uh, college, uh, community college. ELAC, yeah, East Los Angeles Community College. And the L.A. Times ranked the game as the toilet pole. Oh. <laughs> and we got flushed. I never started a game that whole year, but the coach let all the seniors start that year. What, you know, we're not going to hurt the season at all. I had over 30 tackles in that game. And the coach said to me afterwards, you should have been playing. And it was too late. And where am I going to go? Worst team and not even a starter. So I went to Whittier College. And you had to play one year freshman, three years varsity. And finally that year, the first game of the year, I played in my first winning football game. And I know what I would have done after the game in high school, because I know what we did when we lost. We'd all go out and get drunk. And I didn't want to do that anymore because I was a Christian now. And I thought maybe God had something more important for me. I was a child in the faith, but a child under instruction. I was Paideia. But all the guys were saying in the locker room, hey, we're going to a party. We're going to have a big party. You want to go? You want to go? And I just kept my mouth shut and said, that's not my life anymore. I remember being the last one to leave the locker room. Kind of feeling sorry for myself. Have you ever had that happen before? And I come out of the locker room, and sitting on a bench right outside the locker room was a guy who was one of the Campus Crusade for Christ guys at my college. His name was Steve Wallace. I said, Steve, what are you doing here? He says, I'm waiting for you. He said, uh, you told me a little bit about your football background. I came and watched your game. Wasn't that the first winning football game you ever played in? I said, yeah. He said, well, I got a whole quart of peach yogurt and two spoons. Why don't you come over and we'll attack that thing and you tell me all about it. And that might not mean anything to you, but it still brings tears to my eyes that God met me at the place where I was trying to walk with him. I, whenever I buy yogurt, I always buy peach yogurt. 
writing to you children because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you children who are under teachable instruction because it says you're getting to know the Father. I'm writing to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. So we start getting in the word. When we get in the word, the challenges come and now we've got some direction, you see? And we know a little bit about where we're supposed to go. And, and it seems, I, I have not met a person yet who's a Christian, who's been a Christian for any length of time that hasn't gone through some form of suffering. Is there anybody in here that is beyond that? You haven't been through any suffering in your life? No difficulties? No, you're going to go through tough times. How are you going to manage it? And we have this great resource, the Word of God. But we also have the challenge there's a throwaway line from one of C.S. Lewis's academic books called The Allegory of Love. It was the book that established his literary reputation. It came out in 1936. And on page 60 of that book, he says, Innocence is not goodness. It's good. Innocence is good in that it's unspoiled. But it's not goodness. It's not character. Innocence is not goodness. Even divine nature, even in its prime, cannot make a virtue a gift. There's going to have to be some struggle in this whole thing. And we need God's Word. So let's say there's an area in your life. And every time you face this area, you seem to fall flat on your face. And you're weary of it. And finally you say, Lord, I want to do better. You've resourced me with your Holy Spirit. You've resourced me with your word. Maybe you even call into play trusted friends and you share with them your struggle. And now you come up to this particular issue and very deliberately, prayerfully, consciously, you get through it. And the next time, prayerfully, deliberately, consciously, you get through it. And the next time, prayerfully, deliberately, consciously, you get through it. Next time you fall flat on your face again. You take that confession verse, you confess, and you get back in the game. And finally, as you're going through this, you get to the place where the habit starts to develop. Aristotle said habit is man's second nature. Pretty soon you get to the place where every time you come up to that particular area of temptation, you're skating right through it because you develop some, some character. Don't get cocky. God always widens the screen, and we see there's a lot more work that needs to be done. But in that place where you have victory, you're actually better than Adam and Eve were before the fall. They were innocent, unspoiled. They didn't have character. At the testing point, they fell. And you at the testing point have been learning good habits. Adolescents who are growing, you're strong. The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. Last one, fathers. I'm writing to you fathers because you know the one who's been from the beginning. You know him. Characteristic of the mature person in faith, they know the Father and they experience intimacy with God. They've been nurtured by the love of God. Notice what this intimacy with God looks like. That is, this knowing God. See again, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. In verse 3 it says, By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. There's a life of obedience that's starting to develop in us. Not an obedience to earn his love, but an obedience that grows out of a natural um, appreciation of his love. And obedience, obedience is an interesting thing. George MacDonald said, obedience is the opener of eyes. Remember Acrasia? 
I justify bad things, that's the closing of eyes. Obedience, I start to see things clearly again. How many times have you seen things in the Scripture and you say, I don't get it. Why does God tell me to do that? It doesn't make sense. But you start obeying it, and all of a sudden, sense comes. Sense follows. Disobey, and you close your eyes. George MacDonald, obedience is the opener of eyes. Lewis says, obedience is a splint God places on the broken life that in order that it might start to mend. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, obedience is like a fence. It protects us from the things that will do us harm, and it defines playgrounds for us in which we could enjoy life. Joy Davidman in her book, Smoke on the Mountain, said, we have to look at the law positively. When God says, thou shalt have no other gods before thee, what's he saying positively? Thou shalt have me. Thou shalt discover I am enough for you. Uh, when, it says, uh, when it says, thou shalt not bear false witness, what does it say? Thou shalt learn to be a truth teller. When it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, what's it saying? Thou shalt learn to do life well with one person. When it says, thou shalt not murder, what does it mean? Thou shalt learn to affirm the life of others. And when it says, thou shalt not covet, what's it saying? Thou shalt learn the art of contentment. Those are good things, really good things. And I've got another view of it. I don't know very much. I'm a pea brain. I know that. I know that the Bible was given to me by omniscience. And I know that every act of obedience leads me to the benefits of omniscience. I can live beyond my own capacities as I begin to obey what it says in Scripture. And the people who are fathers in the faith, they have come to know that to some degree. And it says, the one who keeps his word, in him the love of God is truly perfected. The word that's used there for perfected is the same word Jesus used on the cross when he said, it is finished. Tetelestai. It's in the perfect tense. Wow. I remember once having a person ask me, can a person who does, you fill in the blank with whatever you want, can a person who does this still go to heaven? I answered him. There's only one sin that can keep you from heaven. That's a sin of unbelief. But a person who has truly believed will give evidence of a life of loving obedience. And if the loving obedience isn't there, you may be a believer, but you don't have much assurance of it. Verse 6, it says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. People, I think this kind of maturity is what God wants to nurture us towards lovingly, but I think that as a church, we're failing because there's so many challenges and we're not living up to the challenges. I have people all the time, they'll say to me, I, I, I know that this is what the scriptures say I should do, but I have a friend. Have you ever heard that one before? Or I have a son, or I have a daughter. How do you respond to those people? I know how I respond. I say, let me applaud you for your compassion for that one who's struggling. I think that's what you should have. But I'm not convinced if you loosen the standard that you're really helping them. You might actually be moving them to, sore, to some pain. I think you should approach it the way Jesus approached it. Well, what do you mean? He, he didn't deal with these kinds of things in his day. Yeah, but he dealt with some stuff that are analogous to it. And if you're in the Word and abiding in the Word, you'll begin to see. They say, well, what do you mean? And I, I, this is the example I bring them in John chapter 8. The woman's caught in adultery, and they throw her down before Jesus. 
It says he was writing in the sand. I, I, don't, I don't know what he was writing. Sometimes I think maybe she was scantily clothed because they caught her in the very act of adultery, which, by the way, where was the guy? You know, it's really a chumpy thing, isn't it? The whole, the whole thing. I think he was writing in, in the ground because he, he, he didn't want to embarrass her any further than she was embarrassed. They keep pressing him. Moses commanded us to stone such a one. What do you say? What do you say? And finally, Jesus says to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He didn't underscore it by saying Moses wrote that too. But the religious leaders start peeling off. Jesus is left alone with the woman. And what does he say to her? Did no one condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. There's the love. Go your way and sin no more. There's the unwillingness to relax the standard. If you have people with love without the standard, the whole thing goes south. If you have the standard without the love, the whole thing goes south. And we need to be Christians who are maturing through the nurture of a loving God who can still love the person who's struggling but not relax the standard. We turn to the word for the standards for maturity. The standard is Christ himself. The scriptures are a tool. We need to know it well and wield it with skill that we might grow and mature in the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. You know, Lord, we're, we're not real good at this. But we want to get better. We really do want to get better. And, and we're living in challenging times when there's so much ambiguity, so much confusion. Keep us secure in the word. Keep us secure in what you've revealed to us about your son. Keep us secure in the Holy Spirit. Keep us secure in the love of God that nurtures. And we ask this in Jesus' name.